Welcome to the Doc Talks podcast, a conversation on what's new and relevant in the world of Canadian medicine and hospital healthcare. I'm your host, Ian Gillespie, and I'm here to ask the questions and find the answers you need to know. We want to help our listeners know how to prevent and detect illness and how to navigate our healthcare system. Be sure to subscribe to the Doc Talks podcast to stay up to date on new episodes and follow us on Twitter at St. Joseph's London or visit sjhc.london.on.ca slash podcast. Hello, I'm Ian Gillespie. Welcome to the Doc Talks podcast, brought to you by St. Joseph's Healthcare London. At some point or other, most of us do it. Some of us annoy our partners with it. Some of us have no idea we're doing it. I'm talking about snoring and the possibility that your snoring could be a sign of sleep apnea, a serious sleep disorder in which a person's breathing repeatedly stops and starts. If you snore loudly and feel tired even after a full night's sleep, you might have sleep apnea. And so, to sort that out today and find out if you have sleep apnea, what are the treatment options available, I'm going to be posing some questions to Dr. Brian Rotenberg, an otolaryngologist, head and neck surgeon at St. Joseph's. Thank you for joining us this morning, Dr. Rotenberg. It's a pleasure to be here. So personal footnote, I have had sleep apnea since 2001 and have used a CPAP machine then for, what is that, 22 years. So I'm very interested in the topic today. I guess the first basic question is just, I know there are different types of sleep apnea. Can you tell us exactly, basically, what is sleep apnea and maybe walk us through the different types? Sure, Ian. Sleep apnea is a very common disorder where people's throats are blocking their airway when they're sleeping at night. So what typically happens in obstructive sleep apnea is when you go to bed, your muscles will relax when you're sleeping, such that when you're making the snoring sound, the back of your throat, which is the area called the uvula, is vibrating like crazy. That makes the snoring noise. The outside walls of your throat where your tonsils are, or the back of your tongue, or even your epiglottis can all collapse into the airway and block the airway. This causes you to stop breathing. And as you may have experienced for yourself, you might be snoring and snoring, they kind of stop, and you're stopping, and your partner's thinking, why aren't they breathing? Why aren't they breathing? And all of a sudden you go, and wake up. And the cycle repeats itself over and over and over again. And that is obstructive sleep apnea. There is a different kind called central sleep apnea, which is where it's not so much about airway obstruction, but rather your brain is actually not giving the correct signals to your body to breathe. So that's a very different kind of apnea that would not be treated by your kind of CPAP machine. But thankfully, that kind of apnea is rare. So for most of our conversation today, we'll talk about the obstructive version instead. Okay. So your your airway is blocked and you can wake up sometimes what, like you, I think you said five, 30 times an hour, dozens of times an hour, I remember. I... Oh, it can be much more than that. We had a guy come to the clinic recently whose apnea index, which is the measure of how many times per hour it was, was 120. So that means he's waking up 120 times per hour, right? Right. Which is yeah. unbelievable. It's about four times per minute. So that person's basically not sleeping at night at all, every night, their whole life. But the the reawakening, though, just sometimes though you're not aware of it, correct? You don't absolutely like spring into full consciousness. It's no, a... that's exactly right. So you're not really awake in the sense of that you're awake and alert and can talk to your partner. Rather, right. it's that you're physiologically not staying in a level of restorative sleep. So it's a physiological awakening, but not a true arousal. Right, and obviously this leads to fatigue because you're not getting the proper amount and the proper type of sleep. 
correct? That is correct. So fatigue is typically one of the major symptoms of sleep apnea. Now, fatigue is very nonspecific. There are many reasons to be fatigued, but certainly people with severe apnea are often very fatigued. You know, the problem though, Ian, is that it's not just fatigue. I mean, we can live with being tired, but it's mm. the fact that our body is not getting enough oxygen at night. It's mm. that there's strain on the heart, strain right. on the blood vessels. And so we end up having significant risks for high blood pressure, for heart disease, for stroke. And even more interesting is when you're fatigued to that level, there's actually a higher risk of car accidents in people who have untreated mm -hmm. severe apnea. Because I think, as I recall, uh, you have to declare to the province if you have been diagnosed with sleep apnea for your driver's license. Is that I think that's correct? correct. I don't, yeah. it's been a while since I got my license. So I, <laughs> I don't know if that's true. Right. That's correct offhand. But as, as a physician, you have to declare to the province, if you suspect a patient of being severely drowsy while driving, that's actually a legal obligation to do by the Ministry of Transportation. Right. So again, just to reiterate some of the symptoms, so snoring, episodes where you, as you said, you stop breathing, that sort mm -hmm. of gasping sound. Correct me if I'm wrong here. Awakening with a dry mouth. Yeah. yeah. I mean, those the dry mouth would be typically symptomatic, more of a blocked nose, which can be part of sleep apnea. Okay. I wouldn't necessarily say a dry mouth is a symptom of apnea, but the ones you've mentioned before, so fatigue, snoring, and then in the morning you wake up with a headache, for example. Mm -hmm. That's often a sign of blocked airway and hypoxia overnight. Memory problems during the day severe drowsiness during the day, and younger people or older children, behavioral changes, those can all be symptoms of sleep apnea. Right. And then what's the main cause of sleep apnea? Is it something to do with the actual physical construction of one's neck and breathing system? So there, that's half of the cause, I would say, is anatomy. So if you have large tonsils, if the back of your tongue is enlarged, if your nose is blocked, if you have large adenoids, if your epiglottis is collapsing, those, that's part of it. The other part that's important to bring up, though, is that the work of breathing sometimes makes the problem. And by work of breathing, I mean if people are overweight, then there is more effort put into breathing which by basic physics makes you suction your throat in even more. So if you're predisposed anatomically to sleep apnea and you're overweight, you will now have a much higher likelihood of having sleep apnea. And the incidence increases with as one ages, is that correct? To a certain extent, uh, probably more because we get a little bit uh, larger from a weight perspective as we age. So if you're if you're an older person who's you know in a healthy, fit shape and doesn't have anatomical predisposition, your risk would not be higher than baseline. How is it diagnosed? I remember... I went to the old Victoria Hospital. Is that correct? It was an old oh, wow, South Street Hospital. Yeah, it's been a, that's been decommissioned for a long time now. But yes, that's where the old yeah. sleep lab was. Yeah, and they of course hook you up with little electrodes to your head. And well, as I recall, for me, you're in a tiny room with very thin walls, surrounded by people who snore loudly. I found it difficult to even get to sleep during my test, but obviously it worked out. So how is it diagnosed these days? Sure. So diagnosis, I think, starts actually in the physician's office with a good history and a good physical examination. And there are some questionnaires that people can complete that are what are called validated. So they, they speak to the higher likelihood of having apnea. So a history, a physical examination. And then if there is suspicion at that point for sleep apnea, the gold standard for diagnosis would be a sleep study. And right. sleep studies come in two variants. One is the in-lab sleep study, kind of like what you had where the patient will go to a hospital or to a clinic where they do overnight sleep studies and you'll be in the room where your, your sleeping is monitored with various physiological parameters, typically heart rate, blood pressure, EEG, electroencephalogram, leg movements, 
someone's observing you. That would be an in-lab sleep study. That's kind of sounds like what you had, Ian. The other way to do it is a yeah. home-based sleep study, which is what we do in my clinic, where you can take a little, a little machine home with you at night, and then the device can be hooked up and you're in your own bed and your own pillow, and you will have parameters recorded then and then bring it back in the next day or two for review. Wow. And then solutions. So I went with the CPAP machine. Remind me again, CPAP stands for? Continuous Positive Airway Pressure. And is that the common treatment these days for, for CPAP? For sure. And so... CPAP would probably be considered the gold standard of therapy because it's highly effective. It works well when people can use it. It's non, there's no risk to using it. So it's actually, it's a great therapy. The fact you've been using it, I think you said for 21 years is, is very impressive. But I would also say that it's probably somewhat atypical because most people do not use CPAP for their full duration of prescription. And the mm -hmm. reason being is that it's, in some people, it's very difficult to adjust to it. It's, it's not a natural way to sleep and so requires a lot of coaching. Do you mind if I ask you a personal question, Ian? What kind of CPAP do you use? Is it a face mask or a nasal mask? I've changed masks over the years. I now use a, I believe it has what they call nasal pillows. Yes. Okay. So the little buds, they're almost like earplugs that go up inside the nostrils. Yeah, that's probably the, the most comfortable one to use. And people seem to like that one better than a full face mask or a nasal mm -hmm. mask because those are far less natural. For people who are unwilling or unable to use a CPAP machine, there are also mm -hmm. other therapies. So of course, we talk about weight loss. That always plays a role because when you can reduce the work of breathing, it just helps to decrease the obstructions of your throat. And again, if you're unwilling or unable to use a CPAP machine, then some people can use an oral appliance. This is a customized dental device that can pull the lower jaw forward. Why is that helpful? Because it pulls the airway open. And for a population of patients who have, let's say, a smaller jaw or a bigger tongue, that's sometimes a good option for them. The other option would be a surgical procedure, which is what I can do. We do lots of procedures, and the procedures are very specific to what the anatomical issues are. We can offer nasal procedures or a tonsillectomy, palate procedures, work on the back of the tongue or the epiglottis, and those are very, very patient-specific. So is there one treatment option that is, well, I guess you said it's suitable, it's suited to the individual, right? There's not one that you recommend uh, first or... No, I mean, so weight loss we always recommend because almost everybody okay. who comes to see me is going to have, to a greater or lesser extent, room for that improvement. And so that's universal. You know, healthy eating, dietary changes, conservative therapies, of course. But in terms of actual intervention, at least in my practice, is very patient-specific. There are many people who right. do not want to use a CPAP machine for whatever perfectly valid reason. And so if they are a candidate for a surgery or an oral appliance, I have no problem with offering that to them as primary therapy. There are other patients, however, Ian, who are not suitable for surgery for any number of reasons. They don't have mm -hmm. the right anatomy. Their weight is too high. And patients like that most definitely would benefit from a CPAP machine, especially because typically they have the more severe apnea, which surgery is somewhat less effective at dealing with. So in my practice, I will offer patients all those therapies. We have a discussion about the merits and drawbacks of them all, and patients can make an informed decision. Right. Can you tell me, like, a percentage? Do, like, say, 50% of people go to a CPAP? And what's the breakdown? Well, I mean, I have to acknowledge that I'm seeing somewhat of a biased patient population because they've been often referred to me because of inability to use a CPAP machine. Oh, I see. That's so, okay. so from my practice, they're more surgical. But I would say in general, our, we have some very good sleep physicians here in London and they, they run very strong practices where CPAP would be the gold standard of therapy. And the beautiful thing here in London is that we collaborate closely together as a group. So we share patients back and forth to try and get people the best therapy that they need. If you think globally, then CPAP would for sure be a more prevalent option than surgery. And the surgery, um, can you talk a little bit more about that? You're actually removing 
tissue from the, oh. the throat? Yeah. So during my assessment for a surgical procedure, we perform a full head and neck examination, looking specifically at the nose, the mouth, and we use a little tiny camera to go through the nose and look at the back of the throat. And then we can make a determination as to what the anatomical issues might be that are causing the apnea, and then think about what is the best way to do things. So if there's a deviated septum, we can do a septoplasty. If you have uh, large polyps in the nose, we can remove those. If it's large tonsils, we can deal with those. If you have a long palate causing snoring, we can certainly offer a palatoplasty. There's a large menu of options that are available, which is, it's a great time to doing sleep apnea surgery because back in the 90s and 80s and 70s, there was very little that can be done, whereas now the physiology is so much better understood and the technology has improved so much that we can offer a much wider range of therapy for our patients, as long as they're medically and anatomically suitable for it. Wow. Well, now I'm curious. So someone like myself who had a CPAP uh, machine for 22 years, should I look into another option? I mean, the CPAP machine is, I guess I'm obviously used to it, but it is an intrusive thing. Uh, mm -hmm. The sound of it would sometimes bother my wife. I, the older one I had had exhausted air out the front and it would <laughs> blow onto her face, that sort of thing. But So is it possible someone like myself who's been using a CPAP should or investigate another option? I'd be careful with the word should because I don't think okay. anything is required. I mean, you're, you've had a, sounds like a very good success on CPAP and so why rock the boat? Okay. But if you were interested, just, just give me a shout and we can certainly talk about it. <laughs> I would say that people who are comfortable on CPAP and are doing mm -hmm. well on it, if you're happy with the device and it's working well for you, it's definitely the least risky and you know has mm -hmm. a very high success, so why change? But you know, Ian, there are many, many people out there who, for example, like to travel or like to right. go camping or live in smaller quarters or whatever, where the CPAP machine is just, it's not an ideal therapy. And so it is important for people to be aware that there are other options that exist out there. It just requires a workup, either from a dental side for the oral appliance or from a surgical side with myself or my colleagues to see who's suitable. And the key point, I think, is that not everybody is suitable for a surgery. It depends on body mass index. It depends on their anatomy. So I have many patients who come to see me who, regretfully, I can't operate on them because although the surgery can technically be done, it's not going to be helpful. And then you're putting people through a procedure that carries risk, through an anesthetic. It's Mouth surgery and jaw surgery are unfortunately quite sore. And so it's a lot to put somebody through if their pre-op chance for success is low. And so I just don't do that. And again, it may be different for the surgical aspects. The, the CPAP machine is, again, not a cure. Some people think, oh, well, you, you're cured. It's simply a treatment, right? You have to use it for it to be effective. Obviously. That is, you've said it exactly right. The way I look at CPAP is that it's like an airway splint. So imagine you have a sore wrist and you put a splint on there. So it feels better when the splint is on. When the splint comes off, though, the wrist is still sore. It's the same concept with CPAP machine. It's just opening up your airway while you're using it. But the day you stop using it is the day your airway will collapse again. It's not a training device. It is a uh, significantly helpful intervention during its use. But if you've been, for example, prescribed a CPAP and then you sit it and put it in your closet, that doesn't mean you're being treated, right? You just have the machine right. in your house. Right. I don't know if we touched on some of the uh, the complications that can result. I mean, it's obviously way more serious than just, as you said, being tired. Um, maybe we can talk a bit about those. But first of all, right off the bat, it can, it can cause increased risk of heart problems, heart attack, and stroke, correct? That is correct. So and you're mentioning a good point here is that the problem with sleep apnea is that people are often unaware that they have it or the severity of it. Right. And so, you know, when you smoke, for example, you know that you smoke. And so you know that smoking is not good for your heart and, and you make a decision to smoke or to try quitting and that's up to you. But for a sleep apnea sufferer, oftentimes, especially if you sleep alone, you may be totally unaware you have this. 
But meanwhile, the repeated hypoxic events overnight, where you're not getting enough oxygen to your body, is causing significant cardiovascular stress. It's causing neurological stress. So you have risks of heart attack or stroke. You have risks of diabetes, metabolic syndrome. You know, and then if you look at the societal implications, we mentioned car accidents, and there is actually about a 2.5 times incidence of people who are untreated severe apneics having car accidents versus those that don't. Economic productivity is less. That's been studied many times. And it's also important, Ian, for the audience to be aware that in our time of very significant healthcare strain, that the utilization of healthcare resources is higher amongst those with untreated apnea than those who do have treated apnea or non-apneic. And just because, generally speaking, you're just a sicker person. Your body can't fight off illnesses. It can't repair itself from injuries if you have untreated apnea. So it really should be treated. And is it also, I know we, you mentioned it's associated with advancing age, but is it also common or prevalent in younger people? So I'll make two points about that. One of them is that it, there is an association with age, and the other one I didn't mention as a complication is that there is, seems to be an increasing association with early onset mental status changes and dementia. So people who have significant hypoxia for their whole life, the evidence is suggesting nowadays that there's a higher incidence of mental problems, uh, kind of like Alzheimer's but not Alzheimer's disease. It's a different kind uh, as we age. That's a problem. Among younger people, let's differentiate children from, let's say, teenagers and younger adults. Sure. So children actually have a high incidence of apnea, usually because of specifically large tonsils. And so it's very interesting that uh, over the years, in the past, tonsillectomy is a very common surgery. Then it kind of stopped happening. And then there's more and more tonsillectomies. And there's a reason why is because there has been some evidence showing that a large number of children who have, were diagnosed with attention deficit disorder actually may have instead untreated severe childhood sleep apnea. And if huh. you can do a tonsillectomy for them, then in some cases, it can make them feel better, sleep better, and have behavioral improvements during the day. Now, that's a very different situation with adult sleep apnea, but just important for the audience to be aware of that. From a younger person perspective, teenagers, younger adults, 20s and 30s, the apnea is less common unless you're anatomically predisposed to it, in which case you may have very severe apnea at age 20 or 30. And how then, if one suspects, well, one believes that they're experiencing some of the symptoms we've talked about, how do you go about getting or accessing treatment? The generally speaking pathway would be that people who go to their primary care physician or nurse practitioner, note that they're having symptoms and then be referred to a sleep lab or to an office that does home-based sleep studies like myself. And then, you know, you'll have your history taken, your physical performed and your sleep study done and then take it from there. Uh, there are some dentists who have very strong sleep work that they do in their practices and dentists can also offer home-based sleep studies, which they do. Unfortunately, home-based sleep studies are not covered by our provincial healthcare system. So there is a, usually a small fee to pay for them, but as a consequence, because it's uninsured, patients can also self-refer themselves for the service as well. Okay. Um, do you have any idea of like the percentage of the population that experiences sleep apnea? Yes, I do. I mean, it's, it's actually very prevalent. So this, this, there's been epidemiological data that's been studied for years and years about this. And the estimates are as high as 10% of males can have a degree of sleep apnea and 6 to 7% of females can have this as well. So if you think of the overall population of Canada being about, you know, 35 million or so people, there's probably 3.5 million Canadians who have some degree of sleep apnea who are males and a little bit less for females. So it's a huge number of people. Wow. Well, now you got me wondering if I should get rid No, I won't. I won't get rid of the CPAP <laughs> machine, right? If it's working like, well for you, Ian, right. I, you know, there's no need to rock the boat. I, if, if you're happy with it, then, then fantastic. It's just that those people who... The problem we always have is that CPAP is... And not a natural way to sleep, and it's difficult to adjust to. And just giving a prescription and saying off you go is typically not sufficient. People need to have coaching and monitoring mm. to ensure compliance with the device. And there are some people who they just can't do it because it's, it's not a natural way to sleep. And so people who are 
have symptoms, who have been prescribed and they can't adjust to it, that should not be the end of the story for them. Because especially if they have severe apnea, they should be treated. And so either seeing a dentist for an assessment for possible oral appliance or coming to a surgeon like myself who does this kind of work, people should be looking into it. A lot of people snore, but does that mean that someone who snores has sleep apnea? Snoring is very disruptive to the bed partner, sometimes the family or friends, or even their own snoring self. They may wake themselves up. Uh, but not everybody who snores has sleep apnea. Right. On the flip side, everybody who has sleep apnea is likely snoring. So they're not, they're not quite parallel. If somebody is a very severe snorer, but that's their only symptom, and you do your questionnaires with them, and you do your physical examination, nothing else would suggest sleep apnea. From my perspective, that's usually sufficient to rule it out. The definitive way to rule it out would be to do a sleep study, however, and some people would prefer to have a sleep study to have that uh, checkbox crossed off for them. Uh, but I think that it, it is important if you have very severe snoring that's socially problematic to get it checked out. So if you snore, you might not have sleep apnea, but if you have sleep apnea, you're going to snore. That's exactly right. And is there anything new, Dr. Rotenberg, on the horizon, any sort of new research, any new forms of treatment that are emerging? So, yes, there is. So this is a very, very active area of research globally. Sleep apnea is so prevalent, and there's lots of practitioners studying the issue. I'll mention two things for our audience. One is uh, sleep diagnostic devices. So between Fitbits and Android phones and iPhones, there's a plethora of devices that can be used out there to give you a sense of whether or not you have sleep apnea. Now, these devices are not Health Canada or FDA approved for diagnosis, to my knowledge. And they don't replace a sleep study, and they shouldn't replace a physical exam or history, but they are can give you a sense of the loudness of your snoring, if you're having deoxygenation overnight, and there might be a marker to have you go to seek more formal medical attention. The other thing very interesting is that there is a new device that's come out on the market uh, about four or five years ago now called hypoglossal nerve stimulation. The hypoglossal nerve is a nerve that controls tongue movement, and there are a couple of devices out there. One is called Inspire, one is called Nyxoa, and these devices are actually used to give very gentle tongue stimulation at night, which helps the tongue to move out of the airway. And what's very interesting is that these stimulation devices have been shown in many, many studies in very high-level publications to be extremely effective to treat sleep apnea, probably as effective as CPAP, but perhaps even more so because when you have the device implanted, you don't need to strap it on at night. It just works. And so there isn't the compliance issues that CPAP has. Now, unfortunately, as of yet, these devices are not yet Health Canada approved, but they are being used in the USA and Europe. And I'm working with one of the companies to try and bring them into Canada, hoping for maybe next year at some point. So stay tuned. Wow. So that nerve stimulation device, that's sort of semi-permanently implanted in Correct. It would be, it's actually implanted in their, actually it's implanted in their chest or beneath their chin, depending on oh. the device. So it's beneath, it's very tiny. You can't see it or feel it. These are controlled actually with a, a version of an app. So you, it's not on during the day, it's only on at night. Uh, you can turn it on and off yourself as a patient. Uh, they're not intrusive. There seems to be no real impacts on swallowing or tasting and they work really, really well. So this is probably the biggest development in sleep surgery in my time as a consultant, um, and I'm just hoping to bring it to Canada at some point in the future. Fascinated by that. So that is that sending a, an electrical signal or something? To yes, the it's, it's based on pacemaker technology. So it's very similar to pacemakers for the heart, but it's just it's just a different type of stimulation. Instead of going to the heart, the leads go to your hypoglossal nerve. There's a very small branch of the nerve that actually stimulates the tongue to protrude, and so it just gives a small tongue contraction, which posteriorly in the airway, opens the airway up to remove that obstructive component. Wow, fascinating. Yeah. All right, then. Well, thanks for joining us today, Dr. Rotenberg. It's been a pleasure talking to you, and thank you very much. 
That's it for this episode of the Doc Talks podcast. Thanks for joining us. And join us next time when we'll continue our conversation on what's new and relevant in the world of Canadian medicine and hospital healthcare. Be sure to subscribe and follow us on Facebook and Twitter at St. Joseph's London. Or visit sjhc.london.on.ca slash podcast. Until then, stay healthy.